All right, so how many of you out there, by show of hands, are just already rocking the Christmas spirits? Okay. More than I expected, actually. How many of you are just like, eh, yeah, okay, it's, it's only December 4th. We can wait a little longer. Okay. Well, the next four lessons, all four lessons in December, they're going to have some sort of Christmas element in them, but probably the next three weeks, I'll tone it down a bit for you all that aren't just, you know, riding that Christmas train already. So, our scripture this morning, it's our first actually Christmas scripture, comes from Genesis chapter 28, uh, beginning in verse 10. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. Now, let me give you a little bit of background, what Jacob's up to. Jacob has the tendency to be a little ornery, to be a little deviant, okay? Um, He had just cheated his brother, his brother Esau's birthright from him. And Esau, of course, would be very angry and is actually trying to kill Jacob. So we have a Jacob on the run here, picking up in verse 11. When he reached a certain place, that is Jacob, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west, to the east, north and south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Good morning, church. Uh, Google's definition of God's country is this. An area or region, especially a peaceful rural one, supposedly favored by God. In our scripture, with Jacob on the run from Esau, Jacob truly encounters God's country. He lays down. He must have been exhausted because he used a stone as a pillow. It was at night. He camped out in the middle of the desert. And he had this dream of this stairway to heaven. If you're following along in your own Bible, your Bible might read ladder to heaven. And maybe you've heard the phrase Jacob's ladder before. Right? Well, probably is a bad interpretation. Ladder, not a good interpretation anyways. A better interpretation would be stairway or ramp. What Jacob sees here is an incline that you would see on the side of a temple in those days, like a stairway or a ramp that goes from the bottom to the top of a temple. And he sees angels ascending and descending on this ramp, this stairway to heaven. Paul Myers taught our Wednesday night class and he 
used this scripture in his class and he made the comment, you know, I thought angels had wings. Why do they need a ladder or a ramp or a stairway to get up and down? That's, that was a good comment, I, I think. Um, and I don't know if this scripture intends to say anything about how angels get from here to there, how they navigate. What this scripture really does intend to say is this surprising presence of God right out here in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of deserts, of the deserts. This was, as Jacob found, surprisingly, God's country. And you know, it wasn't always like this, just like what Jacob did. He just kind of had, he just stumbled over a place where God just happened to be. It wasn't always like that. Once upon a time, God and man occupied the same space. God's space and man's space were one. God had relationship with humans. They talked. They communicated. They were in the same spot. You read about that in the first few pages of the Bible called the Garden of Eden. But man and woman, Adam and Eve, sinned. They rebelled. And then all of a sudden, the two spaces became separate. Heaven and earth. God's space and human space because of man's rebellion. Humans were banished from the garden. And in the rest of the Old Testament, encounters with God are kind of like Jacob's encounter. Just kind of happened to find God somewhere in a specific geographic location. God existed in these sort of hot spots. Kind of like Wi-Fi. Alright, you go, you're, you know, you're looking for Wi-Fi on your phone. And oh, got some, I got a signal here. That's kind of what it was like, finding God back then. For example, God was found in the tabernacle, right? When the, when the uh, Israelites toted around the tabernacle in the desert for four years. He was found in the burning bush on Mount Sinai. And then when Israel was a full-blown kingdom and they had a king of their own, God was found in the temple because they had this physical place where God dwelled. And people would come from all over the land to visit this one location, the temple, because that's where God was. That's where God's presence could be found. So this temple was kind of like an overlap between God's space and man's space. There was the temple. And the temple was always supposed to point to a hope. Always supposed to be a symbol of hope. Hope that God's space and man's space will be one once again. Just like it was in the Garden of Eden. You see, the temple back then, the temple courts, was dressed in all of these beautiful fruit trees flowers and jewels pretty thing so when visitors came to visit the temple from all around it would give them the idea that we are going back to how it was supposed to be back to the garden of Eden where God's space and man's space were one and the same that's what the temple experience was supposed to be the Old Testament prophets talked a lot about this they used a lot of garden of Eden Language, a lot of temple language. So you'll see in Joel chapter 2, 
uh, verses 22 through 27. This is what the prophet Joel says. It says, Be not afraid, O wild animals, for the open pastures are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm. My great army that I sit among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are whole. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. This is, this is Garden of Eden language, guys. Uh, Joel's talking about someday it's going to be like the Garden of Eden again. And Isaiah the prophet says the same thing in his second chapter, 11th chapter, 65th chapter. We're not going to read those for time. And Ezekiel, in his 47th chapter, talks about the temple as being the, the place where this restoration of God's space and man's space begins. It all starts at the temple. Ezekiel sees this vision of a river flowing out of the temple. And this river nourishes the land of Israel. And it provides fruit trees. And the fruit trees provide fruit, uh, food for all of Israel. And the leaves of those trees, trees provide healing. Now, if you know your Bible well, that kind of reminds you of Revelation chapter 22, which comes at the last, the end of the Bible. This doesn't quite hit us in the chest like it should. This idea of abundant food, abundant water, this wine and oil overflowing and grain overflowing, it doesn't quite hit us in the heart like it should. Because all I have to do to find abundant water, well, there's a faucet in the bathroom back there. There's a bathroom about 30 feet away from me. There's a kitchen over here. I just turn on the faucet. Wow. Abundant water. All I want. If I want abundant food, all I have to do is go about a three quarters of a mile up the street here, right? And there are two large grocery stores. You enter in abundant food. We're used to this. It's normal for us. But to the original readers and to the original hearers of the prophets and to many people today in the world, this type of thing would be otherworldly. Just out of this world. Abundant foods, water, wine, oil. Just otherworldly. And it could only signal that God has restored his space into man's space. That's what it means. For us, it just doesn't quite have the same effect. So the temple, then, 
as the overlap between God's space and man's space points to this hope that God will someday restore the two spaces completely. So when walks Jesus to the temple for the very first time? And what happened? You might expect something very glorious to happen. Like when the temple was built for the first time in 1 Kings, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It was a glorious, magnificent event. There was smoke, shaking. So you'd expect that to happen when Jesus, God's presence, enters the temple on earth for the first time. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, tells the story of, of when Jesus entered the temple for the first time. This is what it says. I think we have a, this on the slide. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him to show a miraculous sign to prove his authority to do all this. And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. It's really sad what Jesus found. Isn't it not this glorious event like it should have been? Unfortunately, he didn't find anything like this divine hotspot for God's presence. He didn't find this temple to be a symbol of hope that one day God and man would be restored. Instead, he found money, greed, people abusing their authority, selfishness. So Jesus goes in and he acts like he owns the place, right? He's throwing the money around. He's driving out the animals. He's barking out orders. Of course, the Pharisees, the leaders at that time, they can't have that. That's unacceptable behavior. So they call him out on it. They say, by what authority are you doing this? guy that just shows up and Jesus says something remarkable. He says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And the Pharisees, of course, as I would have been, were perplexed. I mean, it takes me three days to put up a tent, much less build this huge temple, right? Of course, the Pharisees were perplexed, but we know today that he wasn't talking about the temple, the stone temple that the Pharisees had in mind. He was talking about himself. You see, this temple that is supposed to be the hot spot for God's 
presence, this place that is supposed to be central to the restoration between God and man, this place that overlaps God's space and man's space, this place, Jesus says, is him. That's a pretty tall claim to make, right? To say, I am the temple. I am this place. This place that the Jews thought was the centerpiece of peace, the beacon of hope, the dwelling of God. Apparently, it's no longer operational because Jesus shows up and says, you know what? The true beacon of hope has arrived. The real centerpiece of peace has come. The actual dwelling of God is right here in front of you. It's me, Jesus said. It's probably a good thing the Pharisees didn't completely understand what he was saying. Or else they really would have been angry. I mean, after all, if somebody were to come into America and go into the White House and start barking out orders to the President and to Congress and throwing things around, you might be thinking, hey, that sounds pretty good. But what would the leaders think? They'd think, who is this guy? What authority does he have to come in here? And then one of these says, you know what, this place, you might as well destroy it. No longer operational because me, I'm the White House from now on. That would be really strange, wouldn't it? That would sound very odd. And that person would probably see a lot of jail time, right? That'd be pretty far out. Well, Jesus, as temple... He says, I am the temple. Jesus' temple is, the, is a central theme in John's gospel. Before he said, destroy this temple, in chapter 2, John says that God became human. And he puts it this way. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, the Greek word for dwelling is interesting. It literally means tabernacle or temple. So a literal translation of this phrase would be the word became flesh and tabernacled among us or templed among us. Jesus or John depicts Jesus as this walking temple, portable temple, temple with legs. And then later in John's first chapter, we have this encounter where Jesus meets Nathanael. And it's kind of a strange meeting. Because Jesus kind of prophesies to Nathanael and says, hey, I saw you underneath the fig tree earlier. And Jesus should have had no way of knowing that. So, Nathanael is astounded. And Jesus basically says, Nathanael, you ain't seen nothing yet. This is what he actually says in John chapter 1, 50 through 51. He says, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That should remind you of our opening scripture where Jacob is on the run and he's exhausted and lays his head down on a stone and he has the dream of this stairway to heaven. 
and the angels of God are descending and ascending on this side of a, a ramp of a temple. Jesus, however, says that the angels are ascending and descending on him. So Jesus is saying that he's this ramp. He is this stairway to heaven. Now, if you recall, when Jacob awoke from his dream, he had some words. He was very surprised. And he said, Surely, the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So when Jesus' conversation with Nathaniel in John chapter 1, Jesus is saying what Jacob said about this gateway to heaven is true of himself, is true of Jesus. So when Jacob said, surely the Lord is in this place, Jesus says, that's true of me. The Lord is in this place. How awesome is this place? That's true of Jesus. This is none other than the house of God. Jesus is saying, house of God, right here. This is the gate of heaven. Jesus is the gate of heaven. And by the way, Jesus literally says, I am the gate, later in John's Gospel, in chapter 15. So what does it mean for us today to have Jesus as our temple? Well, it means that the temple is not fixed in this one specific geographic location. And people don't have to flock for miles around to come to this one spot to where God supposedly is. But Jesus flips the script. Now the temple is something that goes from one spot out into the world. It goes from everybody comes to one spot to this one spot goes out to everybody else. And where did Jesus spend much of his time as a portable temple? He hung out with sinners, tax collectors, those with bad reputations, the marginalized, the lame, the poor. Everywhere Jesus went, he brought peace, hope, and forgiveness of sin. Peace, hope, forgiveness of sin. Those very three things are what the temple was always supposed to bring and represent. Peace, hope, and forgiveness of sin. And that's what Jesus brings as he enters the world as a portable temple. So now we have this, another cosmic change in the order of things. First you had... God's space and man's space is one of the same, the Garden of Eden. But then sin entered the world. Two spaces were separate. Now, with Jesus as a mobile temple, we see him bringing God's space back into man's space again, restoring humans to God. Isn't that amazing? That's big. That's huge. And the cool thing for us is we get to participate in this project. Because that's what it is. It's a project. 
Hey, Alicia and I, we, uh, we painted our deck not too long ago. And, um, you know, it, it involved some hard work. Um, but it was worth it, you know. After we got all done, we sit back and take a look. And, and it kind of makes you feel proud to, to improve your little corner of the earth. Well, there's no greater improvement project than reconciling humans to God. But we get to join Jesus in his mission taking God back into the world, reconciling human to God. Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. It says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together. Let this go right into your heart. In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Quite remarkable, is it not? That we are a dwelling God by His Spirit. We are a temple. We're a temple. And we look to Jesus as our example on what a temple does. What it's like to be a temple. Jesus is is our example. We follow Jesus. So God's country, it's not just an area or region, especially a peaceful rural one, supposedly favored by God. God's country isn't the Flint Hills of Kansas or the Ozark Mountains or the Rocky Mountains or the Smoky Mountains. God's country is anywhere God's people take the Word of God into the world. It's anywhere God's people love their neighbor as themselves. It's anywhere God's people put others' needs in front of their own. God's country is where faith, hope, and love are supreme. It's where God's children pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, as it is in heaven, bringing God's face to man's face. And get this, as the church, we are a part of God's face. We're not part of man's face, we're part of God's face. Think about that for a minute. It's kind of a humbling thought. Right now, as we're sitting here together, Right now, we are in God's face. Jesus says, where there are where two or more of you come together, there I am. With Whenever Christians get together, you become part of God's space. Shouldn't this affect the way we worship? We think we're in God's space right now. In God's presence. I hope that just really energizes you to worship. 
Shouldn't that affect the way we behave? The way we treat each other? Think, man, I'm in God's space. When we're together, we're in God's space. We're not in man's space. We're not in Kansas City. We're not in America. We're not on earth. We're in some place far greater. Supernatural. It's a miracle. When we come together, it's unbelievable. We're not in man's space right now. We're in God's Incredible. Well, I invite you this morning to meditate on that. Today, this week, meditate on the fact that you're a walking temple. You're a portable temple bringing reconciliation back into the world. Bringing God's space with you into man's space. And you're a part of God's space. Maybe you haven't acted like it. Maybe you act like you're more a part of man's space than God's space. The crazy, beautiful thing about being a Christian is you don't have to be perfect to be part of God's space. You don't have to fix all of your brokenness. Because you're always going to be broken. You're never going to fix yourself to where you're going to be perfect. You don't have to do all that first. Because when you put on Christ, we do that in baptism. When you put on Christ, it's like putting on this perfection, righteousness robe. And God sees Christ. He sees perfection in you because you've got Christ on. You're wearing Christ. He doesn't see your brokenness. But you don't have to wait till you get, get your life all together and you're acting like you should. You don't have to fix your brokenness first. Meditate on this this week. Christ is your perfection. You're part of God's base. If you desire this righteousness, this perfection that only comes through Christ, start following Jesus. Start reading the Bible. And if you want to commit your life to Christ, we'll do that right now. We'll baptize you and you can become a part of God's space. And we will encourage you We will pray for you because you're in the right place right now, okay? If you're broken, you're in the right space. You're in God's space. And that's where you want to be. So whatever your need is, you can come forward to the front row. We're going to have an elder up here too. You can talk to me. We're going to stand and sing the invitation song. You can come forward now as we sing.